Welcome to the Seashore Church Message of the Week. This message is designed to bring more of heaven into your world today. For more resources like this, or to learn more about our church, visit seashorechurch.com. What is truth? Rummy brought this topic up last week, and I'm going to continue on the same theme. Um, and what I love is if, if we've been teaching on Sunday nights, by the way, we've been doing teaching nights and, and we've been doing it on the topic of apostolic leadership or some people call it fivefold ministry um, that you see from Ephesians chapter four, the structure that God provided to actually lead the church of apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, and pastors. And so we've been teaching about what those are and that is kind of the leadership model of Seashore Church is seeing all five of those uh, gifts flowing through the church and recognizing and raising up people um, that God has chosen to, to uh, lead in that particular way. If you haven't figured out which one is which, Romy's the apostle and I'm the pastor teacher. So Romy talks about things differently than the way I talk about things sometimes. But I want to approach the same topic not to give balance to it, because that message does not require balance, but it's to give an, a, a perspective of it from a teaching and a pastoral standpoint that co-alongside what she talked about last week so powerfully and so beautifully. And so I want to help share on that topic of what is truth. <laughs> Akeem, what a great story Akeem was telling, you know, about the locusts. I love that story. And if you're watching on YouTube, I'm sorry, but I don't know how you're going to find that story. Just Google Minnesota locusts. I guess that's how you do it. Minnesota but grasshoppers. Minnesota grasshoppers. But uh, it got me thinking about locusts. How many of you grew up in church in the 80s? Anybody grow up in church in the 80s? Just a few of you. That's cool. Or, or prior to that, there was a, a popular song that we used to sing all the time. It was like one of those really upbeat songs. And, and back in the 80s, I guess it was one of the only songs that kept me awake in church. But I don't know if you remember it. They rush on the city. They run on the walls. For great is the army that carries out his word. The Lord utters his voice. How many of you think I'm crazy? Anybody remember that song? Blow the trumpet in Zion, Zion. Sound the alarm in my holy mountain. I had some kind of dance moves to go along with it as well. And people were sewing through it. They're like, yeah. Read Joel chapter 2. That is about the destruction of Israel by the Assyrian army. The locusts in the army they're referring to are the army that came in and decimated Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took them all into captivity. And we're like, they rush on the city, they run on the wall. Like you're, you're singing of your own destruction. <sighs> Good song, though, man. I love that song. Sometimes you're going to find in life that maybe something you always thought to be true is actually something else entirely. And I think the challenge for us as spirit-filled believers, and by the way, thanks again for once again preaching my entire message in your prophetic word. Well done. That was awesome. And uh, I love that in our church. I feel like every time somebody gets up and shares something prophetically, I'm like, well, I don't need to say that anymore. I don't need to say that anymore. It's great. It means we're all flowing in the same stream, Right. But sometimes the challenge for us as spirit-filled believers is when we find something that we always thought was one way, and then all of a sudden we discover that it's actually something else entirely. And what happens is we're now faced with a choice. 
we're faced with a choice of whether we're going to change the way we think about something or just stubbornly keep believing what we always thought was true. It's almost like the ostrich that buries his head in the sand to try to escape whatever it's trying to escape from. But what is truth? I think in my lifetime, that question has never been more important than right now. In an era where we just see so many versions of the truth, I think there was a late night talk show host once years ago that invented a word, truthiness. That's one of my favorite words. Truthiness. There's an element of truthiness to this. There's no such thing as truthiness. It's either truth or a lie, right? And so with trying to decide, who do I listen to? What do I believe? What is truth? And sometimes the institutions that we held up in the highest standard of being truth bearers and letting us know what really happened, like the news, suddenly we, it's like, well, which news are you listening to? We never asked that question when I was a kid. The news was the news. They just reported what happened. But now you don't know who to believe. Well, man, I've got to listen to a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Nobody's really in the middle to kind of get the full picture. Man, that's tiring, isn't it? So how do we know what truth really is? And sometimes it's not just a matter of discerning truth from a lie. Sometimes it's a matter of discerning truth from opinion. And I know that for me, I don't want to live my life based on my opinion. In fact, the word meekness, when Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth and the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, the definition of that actually means refusing to live life based upon your opinion. Because I got opinions. And Rumi said, amen. <laughs> I got lots of opinions. I got strong opinions. But I don't want to live my life based on just my opinions. And I have to be able to discern for myself what is my opinion on something and what is either the conviction of the Holy Spirit or what does the Word actually teach. In John chapter 18, Rumi used this scripture last week. Jesus was arrested and it was the night of His crucifixion and He was tried before Pilate, who was kind of the Roman governor of the area. Now, I'll be honest, Pilate really didn't want to see Jesus. Like they woke him up early in the morning and these Jews wouldn't go into his house because it was Passover. And so if they went into a Roman's house, they wouldn't be able to celebrate Passover. So they're banging on the Roman governor's door asking him to come outside because I can't go into your house. You can already tell he's probably a little ticked, right? And so Pilate comes out and he's like, he starts to question Jesus. I don't believe personally, opinion, that there is anything about Pilate that wanted to see Jesus killed. In fact, we read from the text that he actually saw nothing in him that was a reason for his execution. And this is where we pick up the story. Because he begins to ask him, are you a king? This is Pilate asking Jesus. And he says, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, well, you say I'm a king. Isn't it interesting that in John's gospel, Jesus never claims to be a king. It's what other people said about him. Another message, another day. Sorry. You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world, that's a pretty big statement. Jesus saying the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Jesus was born to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. 
And Pilate's response, what is truth? John says he retorted like this. In other words, it's, it's almost like this sarcastic, what is truth? You see, because in the Roman pantheon of gods, there were so many gods and there were so many different ways of celebrating religion, nothing really mattered anymore. It's like, well, you probably have nine household gods, three national gods, and something from the past. Which god do you worship? Greece was even worse. And in that culture, religion was never a matter of conviction. The only reason you worshiped a god was to hope that he might benefit you somehow. So the concept of one god who you fully give your life to and worship didn't make any sense. Or even the idea that there was an absolute truth was completely foreign to the way that they thought. Truth was very relative. It was truthiness. So what's true for you may not be true for me. Sound familiar? It's the postmodernism that crept in back in the 80s and 90s into our intellectual universities and things that taught that truth is not absolute. Truth is only relative. That's why you can be offended by me. If I live my life based upon conviction, my convictions offend you. It's ridiculous, right? How do my convictions offend you? I'm not projecting my convictions on you. But if you live in a world of relativism and there are no absolutes, then offense just happens so easily. And you want to be frustrated and ineffective? Live your life trying not to offend people. But guess what Pilate did? Pilate tried to live his life not to offend the Jews. Pilate's only job, really, was to make sure there was not an uprising and a revolt from the Jews. That was it. So at all costs, he was going to placate those who wanted that done. If I kill Jesus, it'll stop a riot. If I don't kill him, it may cause a riot. Therefore, go kill Jesus. The fear of man. Man, does the fear of man drive people to some really poor decisions. What is truth? I was talking to a friend of mine who's a police officer the other day, and he said, man, I just get lied to all day long. And I was like, me too. It's great. Police officers, pastors, I don't know who else would fit into that. Probably you as well. You know, we just get lied to all the time. And so sometimes I'm going, God, I don't know the truth from a lie of what people are telling me, but I don't want to let my opinion weigh into that. But pretty soon, you, pretty soon you realize it would be important to know the truth in certain circumstances. But how do we know what's true? How do we know what news to listen to? How do we know what feeds us? As Yasmina said, look, the Bible's great. It's great. But how does a book written 2,000 years ago, how can I read that and it tell me whether I should get a vaccine or not, whether I should wear a mask or not, whether I should pull my kids out of public school or not. I don't know chapter and verse where that's written in the Bible, right? Thou shalt not mask thy kids. I don't think that's in the Bible, right? How, what is our response going to be to government authorities who want to keep us from worshiping? At what point do we say obey governmental authorities, which the scripture does say? And at what point do we say, but not this far, because this crosses the line to uh, asking me not to worship. Where do we draw the line between our conviction about not allowing religious persecution because we're Americans and this is freedom of religion, but yet the Bible says when you're persecuted, thank God because you're suffering as Christ did. 
How do I know when this is a time to just be persecuted and when it's a time to stand my ground? These are questions I ask God, and hopefully I'm going to help you see where that is. So the question I ask myself is, what do we do when long-held ways of thinking about things turn out to be not as true as we thought? It's hard. Trust the science. You like that one? I love science. I was studying to be a political scientist. Boy, those are two things that don't go well together, do they? (laughs) Trust the science. Doctors always know more than you do. I remember there was a moment when we had a a pediatrician with our own kids. And Romy is very, very, like, she researches. Not, I read three people said this on Facebook, therefore it's true. Like, she was really digging into some health things. And we had some questions of our pediatrician, particularly as she brought up last week, the topic is just vaccines for us, but it's, this is not an anti-vaccine message. I'm, I'm trying to help you see how to discern truth. But she just had some questions. And she's like, you know, I'm reading this, I'm reading these medical journals, and, and I've got some concerns. And you can tell that pediatrician is looking at her watch going, I've got six more people. And she looked at Rami and she said, you got to stop doing so much research and just trust what I'm saying. I'm so glad she said that. Not all doctors are that way. But I realized she just verbalized something she's always thought. And we're like, thank you. We'll be looking for another pediatrician now very much. Because I don't want to just believe what people tell me. But how do you know what's true? I'm not a doctor. She's not a doctor. We actually want doctors for our kids, but not one that just says, stop doing your own research. Just trust me. How about this one? There's many ways to get to heaven. Have you guys heard that before? There's lots of ways. Surely a good Buddhist will get to heaven and a good Muslim will get to heaven. There's many ways. But yet Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to heaven. (laughs) Alex, my biblical scholar here, is like, no, that's not right. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it see sometimes maybe the way you thought about something isn't actually the way that it is you want another one it's christmas and i hate to break it to you Jesus was not born in a barn. I know the live nativity scenes we have where it's like shepherds over here and and three kings over here and animals around and he's outside. And many of us grew up thinking that somehow Jesus was kicked to the curb because nobody really wanted him. And so he just ended up in a barn all by himself somewhere. Just he and poor Mary, poor Joseph. Here they are out in the cold and sleeping in a stable because there's no room in the hotel, the inn. That's actually not what happened. You see, the whole concept of an inn in Bethlehem was not what you think it is. In that culture, there were small homes that they had, usually one-room homes, And on the top of that home, they would always make a guest room because hospitality is very important in the Middle Eastern culture. And so they would have a small guest room upstairs in case they had visitors that actually came. And so what happened is that when Joseph and Mary arrived in Bethlehem, and by the way, let's talk about Joseph for a minute. Joseph, we know, was a part of the Davidic line. 
So he was blood by blood connected to King David, the hero of the Israelite culture. They would have known who Joseph was. Joseph arriving in Bethlehem, the city of of David, the place where they knew the Messiah was going to be born. Joseph, even if they don't realize that Mary is carrying the Messiah, him arriving in Bethlehem would have been the most famous last name in town. Anybody would have been honored to have Joseph stay in their home. Anybody would have been honored by that. He wasn't kicked to the curb that nobody ever cared about. And in fact, the inn that's talking about is the extra room that was on top of the house. Because people were all coming back for the census at the time, it means that that room was already occupied and they wouldn't kick somebody out of that room just to make room for them. So if the inn is occupied, where's the only place that's available? It's the actual room where the family was. And I would say to you that Jesus wasn't born in a barn. Jesus was born in a living room amongst a family that gave Joseph and Mary the best of what they had. So what about the animals? Well, you had to be filthy rich to have a separate barn to your house in Bethlehem at the time. So what they had is when you walked into the house, there was a small little room in the beginning, and then you kind of went up a couple of stairs where the main living room was. And because at night, because of safety, they would bring the animals into the house in that little room. And when the animals needed to eat at night, they would put a feeding trough in the living room right next to the lower part where the animals were. So instead of them having to go outside to eat, they would just pick their head up and get a little bit of hay to eat and then lay back down again. That's the manger. I want to give you another picture of Jesus, that he was born in the living room to a family that gave him the best of what they possibly had and was laid in the best possible place for a baby to be laid in a living room. It got quiet. I'm just saying. There's three wise men, right? Sorry, there weren't three wise men. We three kings of Orient are... See, that's what happens is we learn things from songs or from veggie tales or from something else that forms our memories of the way things happen. The Bible doesn't say there were three kings. It said there were three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So we conjectured that it's three kings that each carried a gift, but there could have been any number of kings. And by the way, in the Middle East, three kings don't travel by themselves. It was especially carrying gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I mean, come on, you got to have a little bit of an entourage. There were likely many more than just those three. It's just those are the three particular gifts that they brought. I'm just saying, does that ruffle your feathers a little bit? Some people it does. Sometimes that's not really all that important necessarily theologically. But sometimes you'll find that the way I've always thought about something isn't necessarily the way that it is. When that happens, can I share with you two mistakes that I've seen that people make? Is when their thinking gets confronted. One of the mistakes is that people just stubbornly refuse to change the way they think. I'm going to sing We Three Kings. You can sing We Three Kings, I promise. I did it as a solo, as a seven-year-old boy in my church, off-key, and I had to change key in the middle of it because my voice didn't go that high anymore, or low. I don't know what it was. That's a hard song to sing, We Three Kings. My gosh. Our kids team is now looking at the lyrics of all the songs that we're supposed to be singing Christmas Eve going, oh, no. Got to check the theology of this. But sometimes when we're confronted, 
that maybe something we thought was true is not actually true. They stubbornly refuse to change the way they think. I'm just going to keep doing it this way. I'm going to keep doing it this way. I can tell you this actually kind of happened to me a little bit. You know, I grew up in the South and proud of my Southern heritage here in Hampton Roads. And, you know, when it just came to the, the, the thing of, of Monument Avenue, you know, in Richmond and all the statues, look, my dad and I, we love Civil War history. We go visit battlefields. And I promise you, there's not a racist bone in his body or in mine, um, despite having grown up in an era full of segregation and racism. There's not a bone in his body that thinks that way, but we love the history of it. And I would go down Monument Avenue and go, I can't believe they're tearing down these statues. This is history. This is beautiful. People should learn this. Until I realized those statues were actually put up in response to the civil rights movement, and it was a thumb in the nose of, a, uh, of the Northerners and, and honestly, African Americans, a way of saying, although we lost, we're going to put something up that reminds you that we're still in charge. And I, when I learned that, when I actually discovered that, I went, the way that I thought about these are wrong. These need to come down. That was hard for me to, to think. Not hard for me to say they need to come down, but maybe the way I've always thought about these statues is wrong. By the way, if you're a white person, it helps to talk to some African Americans about this and maybe get their perspective about it as well too because sometimes they see those things very differently to the way we do. And it's easy to go, well, they need to stay. It's history. But if it's offending my brother in a way that creates division between us, what good is a statue? That's just my thing. You may think differently about that, and that's okay. You're wrong, but you can think differently about that. That's okay. <laughs> so that's one thing. Sometimes people stubbornly refuse to change the way they think about something. The second thing that I think is equally tragic is they lose faith in everything. If that's not true, then I can't believe anything. It's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I've told you before, and this is not just me telling you, but this is a year of exposure. I hate to tell you, there is much more coming. God is doing something in the church. He's doing something in government. He's doing something in entertainment. The things are being uncovered. Things that people have been doing in secret for years is only now just starting to come to the surface. And it involves people that you used to look at and trust because of their position, because of their gifting, because of their authority. And yet when it comes out, whether it's a pastor, whether it's a political leader, whether it's a beloved Hollywood movie star that everybody says is the best thing since sliced bread and you only find out later they were into some very deep, dark things. It's going to be really easy for us to go, well, if I can't trust that, I'm just not going to trust anybody anymore. But that's just as wrong because it leaves you in a place without hope. And God is not a God who lacks in hope whatsoever. I know some people's church experience when it comes to the Holy Spirit, it's taught them that the Holy, Holy Spirit only really comes and moves because of some external things that we've done. So when the song is just the right way, when the lights are just the right way, when the venue is just the right way, when we've prayed certain prayers, that's when the Holy Spirit comes. And so we've got to have all the stuff. It's like trying to create externally an atmosphere where the Holy Spirit feels welcome. I can't imagine the Holy Spirit in heaven going, that song was a little off key. You might want to practice. Maybe I'll show up next week if she doesn't lead worship. Or he doesn't lead. If that kid sings off key, we three kings, one more time, I'm done. 
Yet on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, it was the Holy Spirit that created the atmosphere. He created the noise. He brought the fire. We think we got to make fire to get Him to come. He's like, I am the all-consuming fire. There was a sound like the rushing of a mighty wind. The people didn't make the sound like the rushing of a mighty wind. The Holy Spirit made the sound. It created the environment. But somehow man thinks, I have to create the environment the Holy Spirit created so he feels welcome. That's not how he works. So what happens is they've been part of an environment that's tried to create all the external factors, but the Holy Spirit never comes. Because there's no surrender of the heart. There's no humility. There's no hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's no repentance. And so you have all the external but none of the internal and people leave emptier than they did when they came. And then at some point they wake up and go, we keep doing all this stuff and we are wearing ourselves out and I don't feel any different on the inside. So you know what? I'm done with the Holy Spirit. I will love God. I will tithe. I'll sometimes go to church, but I don't, I I, I have friends, and this breaks my heart, that have completely thrown out the possibility that the Holy Spirit still moves today because of that experience. And I'm going, no, He's real. Your experience was wrong, but He's real. What if I told you, you don't need all of that stuff to actually experience Him for yourself? All it takes is a surrender of your heart to say, Jesus, I'm tired of doing it my way. Give me your spirit. I want your spirit. Do you know that he wants to give you the Holy Spirit more than you even want to receive it? He described it as a father that just provides bread for his own kids. What father doesn't want to do that? And Jesus is saying, my father wants to give you the spirit. If you'll just wait. Stop creating environments. Like what the Holy Spirit did. The only environment the Holy Spirit needs is a hungry, obedient heart. Let me throw you another curveball. Where were the disciples when the Holy Spirit fell? See, a lot of people, every time I say that, they go, well, they're the upper room, right? They're all gathered together in the upper room. No, the upper room was the Last Supper. It said that there were 120 people that received the Holy Spirit. How many of y'all got people coming over for Thanksgiving, Christmas Eve? You ever try to fit 120 people in your house? I have. <laughs> Doesn't work. We did for one of our house churches once, which is what forced us to come here, because we had three Sunday morning house churches during COVID when all of our buildings were shut down, and all y'all parents got together and like, which one are you taking your kids to? So all the kids showed up to the same one, and we had 68 kids in one house on a Sunday morning. And Holy Spirit was there, but I thank God they had a big backyard and it was a sunny day, but we're like, man, we need a venue for Sunday morning because this isn't going to work. It says there was 120 that were there. Not only that, but it says when the Holy Spirit came and they began to speak in other tongues, that many heard, and there's a list of them in Acts chapter 2, they heard them speaking in their own language. Well, where is the place where so many people from different languages would gather together? They weren't there to get filled with the Holy Spirit. They just happened to be there. And it said that 3,000 were added to their number that day and then immediately baptized. Do you have a baptismal in your house that will baptize three? I know you've got a creek in your backyard. 
But can you baptize 3,000 people in your house at one time? You know where they probably most likely were? The only place that fits that description is the temple. I would say, opinion, that they weren't gathered in a house somewhere. They were in the temple. When the Holy Spirit came, the disciples were in the temple. What was different about the temple in Acts chapter 2? Anybody know? Remember that curtain that separated the holy from holies? It was torn. Could you imagine going to church and the big barrier that's always there? By the way, if you go in that room, you're going to die. Don't go in that room, right? And I'm like, that's not the kids' area, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> Anyone afraid of kids' ministry? You go, and all of a sudden you come, and it's all, I'd imagine there'd be a little bit of, how far do we? I just, to me, it blows me away. But I would say that's probably where the disciples got filled with the Holy Spirit, is in the temple. Not in a home. Not in an upper room, certainly. Just throwing it out there. Pilate asked, what is truth? Now that scripture doesn't particularly say what language Pilate said that in. Because it was kind of a mixture. Pilate was Roman. People wrote in Greek and often spoke in Greek. Romans would speak in Greek or in Latin at times. But the language that Jesus spoke was Aramaic. It was kind of this version of Hebrew. So him and all of his disciples, when he's speaking, is Aramaic. So things like Abba, when he says Abba, Father, that's an Aramaic word that means daddy. So that question in Aramaic, and I don't know what language Pilate actually spoke when he said, what is truth? But in Aramaic, it's not what. In Aramaic, that question is, who is truth? So it's possible to interpret the scripture not as what is truth, but who is truth? He asked that question of truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the narrow gate. He is the narrow path. When Pilate asked who is truth, he's speaking to the truth. Jesus is truth. The writer in Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 30, says, every word of God is flawless. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. And he says, two things I ask of you, Lord. Don't refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. That daily bread, that writer of Proverbs is speaking of the actual bread. Like food, sustenance, right? But then Jesus tells Satan when he's tempted, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So when I read that, I'm not just thinking about my bread. I'm like, God, give me your word. Like, keep falsehood and lies far from me. That's a prayer that I pray. But Jesus is the truth. So if you're looking to discern truth from the lie, You've got to know Jesus because he is the truth. Jesus doesn't have the truth just like God doesn't have love. God is love. Jesus doesn't have truth. He is truth. Do you see? So the way that we discern truth is to be in relationship with the truth, not to just read about him in a book. When, when Rumi quoted that verse, for you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, that word know, epignosis, is not a head knowledge It's an experiential knowledge. Like, I know Romy. 
I may know where Hebrews is in the Bible, but I know Romy. When the Bible says you will know the truth, it's this experiential knowledge that he's talking about. So in other words, if you are experienced in relationship with Jesus, the truth, then you will know the truth and truth will set you free. Having a head knowledge of the truth doesn't set you free. It's the experience with Jesus of the surrendered heart to him and the fully giving over of yourself and your opinions and your wills to him is what helps you to discern truth from a lie or truth from opinion. Does that make sense? Oh my goodness. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding, or you could say your own opinions. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Every day we face a choice. Will I lean on my own understanding, or will I trust the Lord? As we finish today, let me show you two things that we have to help us tell the truth from lies. Okay? Number one, it's your Bible. I was going to hold my iPad up. I got a new Bible this week. I love it. I'm actually reading it now. <laughs> it's the Word. Ephesians chapter 6, that, that scripture that talks about the armor of God, says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Take up the sword of the Spirit. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. The Word of God will help you to discern truth from a lie. It will help you to discern right from wrong. The Bible says it's like a two-edged sword that divides soul and spirit. Do you know what your soul is? It's your mind, your will, and your emotions. And your spirit is the thing that Jesus saves. So it helps to divide between your will, your opinion, and what the Word of God has to say. That's what the Bible does for us. The second one is the Holy Spirit. So the Bible and the Holy Spirit are what help us to discern truth from a lie. The two words here, maybe you've heard these in Greek. I don't mean to have a Greek class here today, mainly because I don't speak Greek. But logos and rhema, right? That logos is the Greek word that means the written word of God and rhema is the spoken word of God. Anybody ever heard that before? Is that brand new? It's okay if it's brand new. So there's the logos, which is the, the word of God, your Bible. And then there's the rhema, which is the spoken word. So some of the prophetic words that you saw here today, that's partially rhema, it's the revelation. Here's the problem. For too long, it's been taught that these two things are separate. And they're not. You see, rhema comes under logos. So there is no separate voice of God from the written word of God. Because rhema, the spoken word of God, is what illuminates the written word of God. You cannot separate these things out. And this is where I think we get it wrong sometimes. You know what it sounds like? I'm just waiting for Jesus to tell me I can divorce my spouse. Well, keep waiting. Because you don't get to just walk out of a marriage because you don't want to be married anymore. So what you're waiting for is for somebody else to tell you it's okay because Jesus isn't going to say it. Why can I confidently say that? Because his word says you can't just walk out from a marriage because you don't want to be married anymore. Are there grounds for divorce? Yes, I believe the Bible does teach that. This is not a message on divorce. I'm just saying if you're separating logos from rhema, you're trying to say 
God will speak to me directly regardless of what the word says. And God doesn't work that way. He won't negate his word. Do you know what happens when we separate logos from rhema? Rhema from logos? You get a cult. Anybody ever heard of the Book of Mormon? That's rhema divided out from logos. Another testament. There is no other testament. Did we not just read, don't add to the word? We just read that from Proverbs, right? Every word of God is flawless. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. I'd be careful about doing that. God will speak to us through his word. But as I said before, although the Bible is all God, not all of God is in the Bible. Like he can't be contained within the pages of a book. And it's a long book. If you've tried to read the Bible in a year, I've tried, failed many times, taken me several years to do it, right? It's a lot in there. But all of God isn't contained in the Bible. But yet all of the Bible is God. It's God-breathed, God-inspired, right? So we can trust the Word of God, but understand that we need more than just the Bible to understand how to live the life that God's called us to live. It's Word and Spirit. So the Bible, I've looked, doesn't have the word vaccine, doesn't have COVID, doesn't have masks. So how do I know what I'm so, that's just the topics today. Trust me, there were other times when they're going, well, what about drugs? Oh, marijuana, that's a good one. Should we go there? Can a Christian smoke, can a Christian smoke weed? Gosh, I actually, the word marijuana is not in the Bible. It says don't get drunk with wine. So in other words, don't be influenced by outside sources. So I would equate those two together. But if it's out of balance, you'll understand it's actually a verse about being filled with the Holy Spirit more than it is about not doing something else. Stay on track, stay on track. <laughs> but there's always questions about how does the Word of God speak directly to the question that I have? It's why you need the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, Jesus describes as the Spirit of truth. Paul describes it as the Spirit of Jesus. So when Jesus ascended into heaven and said, Lo, I'll be with you even till the ends of the age, he was talking about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, that resides in every believer who wants him. And he guides us in to all truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where it says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard. What God has in store, that's another song. No eye has seen. You ever heard that one? I'm not going to keep singing, I promise you. So it's easy to say, look, no one has perceived it. But the scripture actually says, these things, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. So where we can't see things for our natural eye, where we open up our Bible and can't find the answer to the specific question that we have, the spirit reveals to us the truth of God's word. It doesn't counter, contradict what his word says, but it illuminates it so that we can understand what the Word of God has to say. John 16, 13. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is to come. If we understood everything, we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. But I, get, I read my Bible, and trust me, I get confused all the time. I was telling Romeo, I was reading something last night from 1 John that I'd always been confused about, where it talks about water and blood. Jesus was both water and blood. And I was like, Spirit, 
Holy Spirit, would you reveal this thing to me? Would you help me? Because I'm not understanding this. Is this talking about baptism and crucifixion or is it something else? And the Holy Spirit goes, look up this scripture. And it illuminated and went, I get it. John was actually preaching against Gnostic heresy and he's saying that Jesus was both spirit and man. He was both. I was like, thank you, Holy Spirit. Now I understand this scripture. Pretty cool how he does that, right? The Spirit guides us in applying the Bible to every area of our lives. It's not an either or. It's not, I know my Bible, but I don't need the Holy Spirit. And it's not, I have the Holy Spirit, I don't need to read my Bible. They both work together. Make sense? I'll close. Can I share a scripture with you why this is important? Proverbs 26, chapter Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4. Can you guys see that? Do not, everybody say do not. Do not not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be like him. Pretty plain, right? Do not. Look at verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. It's the next verse. Verse 4 says, answer a fool. Do not answer a fool. Verse 5 says, answer a fool. Which one is it? Well, the Bible contradicts itself. That's why we can't trust the Bible. That's what happens. We see something we don't understand, and we go, well, it must not be true because I don't understand this thing. So how do we know? How do, that's contradictory, right? One says to do it, one says doesn't. Well, if you ever had a moment when spanking your kids is appropriate, boy, now I'm bringing in spanking. I'm really hitting hot, hot muds here today. <laughs> Sometimes spanking is appropriate and sometimes just a quiet talking to is okay. Because there's some moments when you need to answer a fool and some moments when you don't need to answer a fool. And when it comes to disciplining my kids, boy, am I grateful for the Holy Spirit. Because I will get it wrong every time. But there's some moments when I wanted to come in and discipline and the Holy Spirit says, no, you need to talk to him. And there's moments when I want to talk to him and he's like, no. Not now when they were much younger, right? The Holy Spirit will guide you into whether this is an answer or do not answer moments. Those aren't contradictory. There's just moments when one of those is appropriate and one of those isn't. But if I'm only going on logos, only just the word, I won't know. But when the Holy Spirit in me is guiding me into all truth, he's saying this is one of those moments and this is not. Psalm 23, it says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Do you know a shepherd's crook, the rod and staff are not two different things. That's often, I'm putting all kinds of stuff here today. The rod and staff aren't two different things. Some people teach the rod was a club and the staff. It's not. It's the same. It's a shepherd's crook. One end of it is a rod and one end of it is a staff. So there's some moments when you take the little hook and just kind of pull it in. And there's some moments when you go to use the other side to let the sheep know what's up. Right? So how do I know as a shepherd, and I'm a shepherd, I'm a pastor, I have to know what moments are rod moments and what moments are staff moments. Because even as a pastor, sometimes you just pull them back in and sometimes you've got to give them a whack. And I know I'll probably whack a little more than I should sometimes. So I've got to come back and say, Holy Spirit, is this a rod moment or is this a staff moment? Because I need your direction. Because you've given me both but I don't know which one to use right now. He will help you. Parents, the Holy Spirit will help you know what's appropriate for your kids. He will help you. He will guide you 
end to all truth. Can I pray for you? Lord, I thank you that you have given us your word, your logos and your rhema, your written word and your spoken word. I pray, Lord, that you would open our ears. Jesus, two of the primary ministries you had on earth was to open blind eyes and open deaf ears. God, I pray that same thing in the spiritual for us, that you would open our spiritual eyes, open our spiritual ears, that what you say, to, hear what you're saying to the churches, God. He who has an ear, let him hear what he's saying to the churches. We want to hear what it is that you're saying to us. We want to see in the Spirit. God, when we pray, and we're praying against people, I pray that you would lift our eyes to go, it's not the people, it's the Spirit driving it that we would learn not to wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and principalities of this dark world. I pray that you'd open our eyes. Thank you for your word. I pray over our church a hunger and a passion for your word. These Bibles wouldn't make the new textbook sound on the first day of class when we open them. But Lord, we would be so in the word and falling more in love with you. As your spirit in us guides us into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources like this or to find information about our weekly services, visit seashorechurch.com.